Hello and welcome to Why'd You Buy That? I'm Drew and I'm here with Dan and Jess. We're in the middle of October, so I thought we'd kick off this podcast talking about Halloween and Halloween spending. First of all, I'm, I'm curious as to how you guys celebrate the Halloween. Is this a big deal for you or is it like come and go, don't really notice it? I don't know that I have a whole lot of spending surrounding Halloween. I buy like one bag of candy corn a year for myself as a little treat. Um, okay. We don't and so get- for context, for new listeners, <laughs> tell them where you're located. And So I live in Manhattan in New York City. So, you know, we don't get trick-or-treaters in our building. We, we live on the fourth floor, so kids aren't finding their way up to knock on our door. So, you know, we don't have to kind of do that prep. And I've always been a sort of DIY costume person. So if we do end up dressing up, I kind of just, you know, either make it or pull from something I have. So yeah, kind of low-key Halloween. What's the most elaborate costume you've made, let's say? Well, I had some really good costumes as a kid. I think my mom was also, you know, a big make-it-yourself person when it came to Halloween. We never had, you know, kind of the store-bought ones, even though we probably wanted them. Um, But I remember a Little Mermaid costume, particularly, that she did like a whole sequined fin tail, and that was pretty cool. So that was probably my best ever. But How about you, Dan? So for me, Halloween is so exciting because it kicks off the holiday season, in my mind. It's like the beginning of October, it starts to cool down. That's right, Dan. All things lead to to Christmas, right? That's right. That's right. (laughs) It's the first step. It's like October 1, it's like Christmas is right around the corner, baby. (laughs) You're hanging up the lights. That's right. So I always get excited this time of year because... Definitely Christmas is like the pinnacle, but just the holiday season and people go out and there's activities going on. It's starting to get cold and there's like the things that go along with fall with the leaves changing and the weather and hot chocolate and breaking out your jackets. Like it's really exciting. So for that reason, I love Halloween. I've never been huge into costumes. In fact, when I was like 12 years old or maybe even younger, I was like, I don't need to have like some elaborate costume. I'm just going to wear this Yankees sweatshirt and say I'm a baseball player and I'm going to get the candy. And like, I never really loved like kind of going crazy with the costumes. That's about the age though. That's about like you get into the teenage years Mm -hmm. and you're like, I want the candy. Yeah. (laughs) But I feel really weird being whatever. Yeah. (laughs) A dragon. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, I did the baseball costume once too. (laughs) No. So, I mean, that's pretty much it. As a parent now, like my younger daughter, Faye, she definitely gets, both my kids get excited about it, but Faye's more about talking about the costumes earlier, figuring out what she's going to be. It's fun to work with them and and kind of work through ideas and and make that happen. And you go trick-or-treating? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We usually just go in a neighborhood nearby, try to hook up with some friends. Yeah. And you do uh, purchase decorations for the house? Usually, yes. Right now, we're like transitioning. So living with the in-laws and my my in-laws are like not having that. And my younger daughter, Faye, again, is like, when can we get decorations like we're driving around she's starting to see things in people's yards and she's like this you know should not be happening we need to get up with the times and get some decorations going so do you think it'll happen (laughs) well we are going this weekend to get pumpkins and we're going to do some pumpkin carving and put those out so that's we're hoping that will kind of i mean that's not like full-blown decorations but we're hoping that'll kind of satiate her her need so how much do you think i was looking this up how much do you think 
the average consumer spends on Halloween between costumes, candy, decorations. I have the number here. But what do you think? I want to say $100. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say it's got to be, I mean, on average, I would even say less. I would say under $70. There's got to be a lot of people that don't do anything besides maybe like buy $20 worth of candy or something. Right. Yeah. So the average is is $92.12. Ooh, oh, all right. Yeah. Right on. So the different things people purchase is they dress in costumes or they throw or attend a party or they hand out candy or they carve pumpkins or visit a haunted house, trick-or-treating, decorate the home. And there's this one thing that people have started doing that didn't used to be a thing like a number of years ago, and that is dressing their pets in costumes. Have you ever dressed a pet in a costume? I have not, but here in our neighborhood in the East Village, there's a big dog parade every year for Halloween. I actually don't know if they're going to do it this year because of, you know, kind of COVID stuff, but it's like hundreds of dogs in elaborate costumes. And we usually go and watch that. It's pretty fun. Okay. And Dan, you have a dog, right? We have a dog and my my daughter again, Faye, she's all over this. She's been asking what we're going to dress up Teddy like for Halloween. I'm actually looking through my journal right now to see if I could find a photo from last year because I feel like we have to have dressed him up because we took him around with us, but I can't remember. But I, I think we did. I think we dressed him up last year. Did you do a homemade costume or did you purchase something? Man, I, I'm going to have to look it up. I can't okay. remember for okay. sure, but we wouldn't, right. we're not above purchasing it though. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that's interesting. And uh, what percentage of people, though, do you think spend money on pet costumes? 5%. Okay. Jess? I think higher than that. I feel like people really love this lately. I want to say like 20%. Wow. Jess nails it again. 18%. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah. Right on the money today. (laughs) People love their pets. That's amazing. Yeah. So I thought another sort of uh, interesting thing is they list the top pet costumes for pets. Okay. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three, three different types of costumes and maybe this will jog your memory, Dan, when you're looking for the costume from last year. So what do you think the, I'll give you three and you tell me which one is the one, two, and three. Okay. Just rank these in order and then I'll tell you the true order of all 10. Okay. Sound good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So ghost, hot dog, superhero, ghost, hot dog, superhero. Okay, I've I've got my answer in my head. Okay, Jess, let me know when you got yours. I I got mine. Okay, so Dan, what do you think the order is? In order, what's the most popular? I would say superhero, hot dog, ghost. Okay. That's truly exactly what I was going to say. Okay. You're not right, but you're very close. (laughs) The hot dog's number one. Yeah, it is. Well, it's not. It's number one out of those three. So uh-huh. I picked three random. So you had to order uh-huh. those three. But the three out of those three random choices, hot dog beats superhero and superhero beats ghost. <laughs> but let me read you this top 10, which is there's something funny in here, which I don't understand. But so the number one costume for a pet is a pumpkin. The number two is hot dog. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how do you make a pumpkin, an animal, a pumpkin? Yeah, pumpkins I know. Around. I, I don't know. Um, like a cat or something. <laughs> the, the number three is <laughs> superhero, but here's the the fourth most popular costume for an animal or a pet, I should say, is a cat. Like, <laughs> what are you? What are you dressing up as a cat? Here's my dog, and he's dressed I up as a cat. A here's yeah. my cat. It's dressed up like a cat. <laughs> of a different color. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> like, how is the cat the fourth most popular costume for an animal? That would be like <laughs> just. <laughs> what I'm else could you? Someone's like turtle dressed up as a cat now. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking that too. Like, are there other animals people are dressing up? Yes. Well, so then the well other animal costumes. So the the fifth most popular costume for a pet is a bumblebee. Mm-hmm. The sixth mm-hmm. is a ghost. Mm-hmm. How do you dress up a pet as a ghost? I guess you put a sheet over it or something. The seventh most popular is a dog. So you're dressing your pet up as a what? dog. I know. It's, I would looked at that and I was like, maybe you guys will will know what's going on with that. And then eighth is a witch. Ninth is a devil. And then tenth is a bat. Yeah, wow, I can see those. Yeah. Okay, so I'm looking online real time, and I do see some outfits here. I see a dog, a cat costume for a dog, (laughs) and a cat dog costume on a dog, and uh, I don't see a dog dog costume. costume? Yeah, you know, like the old cartoon, cat cat dog. Okay. Yeah, so there's a dog. There's there's a dog wearing a cat dog costume, which is kind of interesting because the dog is on the dog's head, but it's above his head. So it's like a two-headed dog with a cat head on the other (laughs) side. It's like I don't know. So what do you think that dog's thinking when he's dressed up? (laughs) He or she's dressed up like a cat. (laughs) It's like what what? animals? (laughs) Animals are so funny, right? Like some dogs. Or, and I would imagine cats too. If you put something on them, they're just like stiff. They stop moving. It's almost like they're paralyzed. And other animals like don't seem to mind it as much. Yeah. I was just kind of thinking of, you know, hey, there's this thing that keeps bothering me all day long. Won't play with me. And now I'm dressed up as it. Like, thanks. My enemy. I could totally imagine a Harry Potter fan dressing up their dog as a cat. And if their dog is just like stiff, then they could say, this is my cat. And it's petrified, right? <laughs> like from the Harry Potter movie. I can I, see I that happening. You should run that by sight. She may like that. <laughs> I think she would. I also think it's funny that she said from the Harry Potter movie. <laughs> yeah. To the book. Oh, well, oh, yeah. No, that's true. That's true. A good little psychological insight there. <laughs> I actually haven't read the books either or seen the movie. so. But I hear they're good. Jess, have you read Have you Harry Potter fan? Yes or no? Not a big fan. I I read the first couple when I was a kid and then have seen some of the movies, but... There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's put a bookmark in it there. Oh, wait. I do want to talk about one other thing, which is it's coronavirus season with the, um with Halloween. Has this changed y'all's plans in any way? Are you... The CDC has put out lower risk, moderate risk, and higher risk activities. And one of the higher risk activities is participating in traditional trick-or-treating where treats are handed to children who go door to door (laughs) or attending a crowded costume party or going to a haunted house. So like a lot of these traditional Halloween activities are considered higher risk by the CDC. And then they give a bunch of alternative things which is having an outdoor party where you can stay socially distanced and uh, participating in a one-way trick-or-treating where the individual wraps goodie bags and they're lined up for families to grab and go at a distance on the dri- from, the I guess, the driveway or the edge of a yard. And then, of course, the lowest risk are carving and decorating pumpkins inside your you know, with members of your household and then decorating your house and then having a virtual costume contest and... Yeah, so I was just wondering, has coronavirus affected your plans at all? How, how are you guys dealing with it? With your one bag of candy corn, is it? 
I've, I've already <laughs> like, eaten half my bag of candy corn. I, <laughs> I pick up the candy corn with a long... <laughs> and I um, drop it in my mouth. Six to foot stick. <laughs> there you go. A long straw. <laughs> you know, we've been doing some of the things, like we've watched a couple of, I'll say like Halloween kind of scary movies. I usually walk around and kind of see, a lot of people decorate their stoops, so kind of the front steps that lead up to their apartment door. And people do elaborate, you know, big, either scary decorations outside or tons of pumpkins and things. So I usually walk around and kind of look at some of those. But otherwise, we would tend to probably dress up and either get together with friends or maybe go to some bars. And that's kind of probably not going to happen this year or so. Did they have big New York City Halloween events in the past? Was that like a big holiday there? Yeah, there's a huge parade that's always in the West Village. And I think parades... Like, I even think the Thanksgiving Day Parade, all of those are kind of off for the whole rest of this year, which does feel a little bit sad. You know, those are such like big New York traditions, but yeah, just kind of a little bit quieter. Yeah. In the past, were they fun? Have, did you go to one? I've been to the Halloween parade one time. It's pretty, you have to commit to it, I'll say. Um, you know, once you get over to that side of town, there's so many people and you know, it's hard to cross back over streets. And so you have to go for like the whole night, but it, it's fun. There's huge floats and anyone can actually join that one if you're in costume. So people just off the streets, you know, jump into the parade. So, Oh really? Cool. Yeah. You could just jump on a float as this, as it's going by if you want. Well, I don't think you can join someone's float, but you can oh. walk, in oh, you the can walk along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you remember anything remarkable that you remember seeing? Sorry to put you on the spot, but no, it's fine. Yeah. This was a few years ago, but there were some really cool, like, I don't know if you've ever been to see like the Lion King on Broadway or any of those kind of big shows in Broadway where the animals are almost like they look like they're walking because people are holding big sticks. So there were kind of huge skeletons that people were like moving from down below, but, you know, like two stories high, like really big kind of skeletal animals and people and stuff that people were kind of all holding from beneath. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, they, they go all out. Yeah. Yeah, that's rad. You know, it seems like every year at Home Depot and Lowe's, they're selling bigger and bigger Halloween items for your yard or your home. And they're getting more and more graphic. And I swear I went this year at Home Depot and there was an eight foot werewolf, right? And they're automated. So that's like they'll they'll make a motion and a sound and their eyes will be like red and you know, and I'm like, (laughs) which is is fine, you know, but there's like there's kids and stuff. And then so I was like, is that like three hundred dollars? Oh, the price of it, I think I did look. I figured like it was like $180 or something. Like yeah. people, it feels like Halloween is becoming more and more like Christmas in terms of how people are spending money on it, which is why I was kind of bringing up, you know, the average person spends $90 on Halloween, which is actually a record high. Uh, <laughs> now, I don't know how much they spend on Christmas. It'd be nice to compare. But so I'm in, I'm in Home Depot and there's the werewolf. And then there's the paint. You remember, you know where they mix paint and they sell you paint at the Home Depot? So at the Home Depot, they have this like child, devil, ghoulish ghost thing, like the undead child with like it's a girl because she has, I assume, this is long hair and the eyes are kind of de- hollowed out, right? So there's just like black sunken holes where the eyes are. And where they're hanging is they're hanging them. So the way that they hung this particular decoration, it was like 
there was something around this its neck so it looked like it was like like hanging like had been hung or something like this and i'm like <laughs> have we gone a little too far people like this is this is <laughs> I was just imagine like a four year old like walking by, being like, "What the, you know, is going on? Is it just me, or have the decorations gotten like out of control?" It is like such an interesting holiday, right? Like the whole thing is kind of weird. Like it's taking these really kind of creepy, evil characters. And then, like, dressing up as them and putting decorations of them in your yard. Like, that's the basis of the holiday, you know? And so, it's kind of like, it's weird. Like, we've obviously kind of domesticated a lot of it, right? Witches are oftentimes much more, like, friendly or whatever than than creepy. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just like a weird thing. The whole, the whole premise of it is that. So, I don't know. Agreed. Like, what is the psychological usefulness? of Halloween. Like, why do we do this to ourselves? What, what is this? It, ha, it must be useful. Like we do it. Like it must be providing us something. But what's crazy about it is that we have all these sort of terrifying things. And then we, we kind of aim, you know, we kind of gear it towards children. And it's like, okay. And then, so you have all of these terrifying things that you would normally like, you might be inclined to like, you know, shield kids from then you're kind of like and now they're all sort of all around when it comes to this holiday yeah maybe it's um you know how they there's uh i think there's a psychological principle that if you i know there's well i know there's a particular app which is if you think about your death more regularly it kind of frees you from the fear of it and then it helps you actually be more happy so mm. i was listening to actually this podcast with you know to some tech executives and she was talking about one of the apps that she has is called, um, it's kind of funny. It's called croak. It's called croak and it's, it's, a, it's a frog. It's a frog. So it's kind of like, but it gives you a, like a date, like a, a thought about death every day. And it's supposed to help you enjoy your life more. Right. So the point yeah. is, is maybe that's what <laughs> Halloween is trying to do to us. Just yeah. scare the bejesus so out like, of us. You open up this app and then you got this quote, like death is looming. Could die tomorrow. But, <laughs> Could be any time. <laughs> I gotta get. Yeah. I gotta show you the the. Uh... Today is gonna be a good day. All right, here's today's. A poem need not have a meaning, and <laughs> like most things in nature, often does not. Yeah. Just like at random. How much is the app? I think that's free, but then they they sell <laughs> they sell like seminars. <laughs> I'm oh into this. I'm going to try it. You should, uh, oh, you're in? Oh, man. Yeah. We, we croaked. We croaked. That's good. Not croaked. Okay, we, we, we croak. We, we croak. <laughs> I guess that makes more sense. <laughs> like, so, as humans, we eventually die, not like we, we all died already. Yeah. We croak. Okay. Yeah. So, happy Halloween, everybody. There's your Halloween app for you. Do you think about <laughs> death and maybe feel more alive? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Weekly, our app that helps you stick to a budget. It's in the Apple iOS app store. You can also find us at weeklybudgeting.com. We have a completely different take on budgeting. The traditional method is to operate on a month, to put everything into categories and subtract the money out of categories. But this ends in frustration for lots of people because they get halfway through the month. They may have overspent or underspent a category. They're not sure where to grab the money from. Oh, by the way, does this sound familiar? Hey, honey, where's the Target receipt? I'm trying to figure out if that is a household expense or a food expense. 
it's just a disaster. So then you end up at the end of the month, you're not sure what happened and you just give up. So we've come up with a different way, which is to operate on a weekly basis. We take your recurring income, your recurring expenses, we subtract your expenses from your income, and then we come up with what you can safely spend for a week. Then we keep you in touch with that number, downloading your transactions from the bank so that you can always know what is safe to spend. This alleviates the guilt of spending and lets you spend with more joy. So we hope you give the app a try. Um, you can go to weeklybudgeting.com, click on the icon, go to the app store. You can also search in the app store for weekly budget or weekly budgeting. Right now we're at the top of the organic rankings for that and give it a try. Let us know what you think and welcome to the podcast and welcome to the weekly community. So I would like to welcome Lidzi Brian Podvin. Lidzi is a financial therapist that works with couples to strengthen their relationship with money using psychology. She is also the author of The Financial Anxiety Solution, host of the podcast Mind Money Balance, and offers financial tools and worksheets on her website, mindmoneybalance.com. Lindsay, thank you for coming and joining us on Why'd You Buy That? Yeah, Drew, I'm really excited to be here and chat with you and Dan today. Okay, so to start off, could you please describe what financial therapy is? Sure. So financial therapy is exactly what it sounds like. It is the psychology of money and helping people get their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in alignment with their financial lives. So it is therapy for your um, the emotional side of money. On your website, you say that money is emotional and psychological. Yes. Can you describe how that is. And I've also heard the term money mindset. What is a money mindset? So the, there's two things there. So money is emotional and psychological and then the money mindset. So I believe that money is mostly emotional and psychological, meaning it's very, it's not as much about the math as it is about the meaning behind the things. And a lot of people seek out tools and tips and tricks on the numbers side of things, thinking that's going to fix everything. And knowing your numbers is something I'm a huge proponent of, which is why having something like the weekly budgeting app is so important to have an idea of what's coming in and what go is going out that helps to build empowerment and strengthen your relationship with money. But the bulk of it is about what money brings up for you. Do you get anxious? Do you get uncomfortable? Do you just want to spend it? Do you not want to look at it? And when it comes to a lot of the work that I do in relationships, it's about navigating two people's relationships with money. And then the second thing is what is money mindset? Money mindset is something that's become kind of a buzzy term over the past few years, but money mindset is really about the lens through which you view money and the the often touted categories of money mindset are scarcity and abundance mindset. Kind of rooted in scarcity is this idea that money is finite. There's only a limited amount to go around. You kind of have to hustle and get your hands on it. And if I get money, that means you don't get money. It's very much like a, a pie-based idea behind money that everyone gets certain amounts of said pie. And then the abundance mindset is this idea that you can kind of cultivate the amount of money that you want to bring into your world, that money is not a limited resource, et cetera. And of course, it's more nuanced than that, but that is a, a very quick and dirty definition of money mindset. Is the abundance mindset like what you preach entirely, or is there a room for the scarcity mindset? 
I get really cranky about abundance mindset actually, because I think that it is, I think a lot of people have good intentions with it, but they forget all of the nuances with money. So for example, if you go onto Instagram and you, you are looking at a money coach or an abundance coach, they're going to be talking about things like manifesting your way to millions and like think happy thoughts and money's going to flow your way, which I think is really it reduces what an abundance mindset is. So I don't just live in an abundance space. I live in, in kind of this space in between mindset and psychology and then facts and data. And when it comes to money, facts and data are, you know, what were the stories that you were told growing up around money? What were some of the first jobs that you had? How did money feel coming into your life? And then the data is what's coming in, what's going out, how much are you saving? And then the mindset and the emotional side of it. So I, I try to kind of live in two worlds instead of just hang out in an abundance mindset that tends to make it kind of seem like it's just easy if you think happy thoughts, then money will rain down on you. And if it were only that easy, right? Yeah. I I loved what you said early on there about helping people gain alignment in their thoughts and emotions with their financial situation. So I think there's like kind of the two components you're talking about there. There's the actual numbers, like how much money can you spend and how much money are you bringing in and how much debt do you have and like those concrete, you know, mathematic numbers you're looking at. And then, you know, what are the um, emotions you have around money that may not be in line with your reality? Like you may actually have plenty of money and you may be totally fine, but you may live in a state of constant stress and anxiety about having enough money. And so I I like, I think that's a a really smart approach. And I've seen exactly what you're talking about, where people are like really pushing, you know, one kind of approach that's going to solve your problem. But I think that's really powerful. You got to dig deep and really get clear on what your feelings are, what your beliefs are growing up and, and how to bring those into alignment with what your life is like now. To that end, what are some typical neuroses or distortions that people come to you with that they have to overcome before they can start to get their financial houses in order? Yeah, well, Dan gave a good example. And I see a lot of clients because of where I'm based. I'm based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And of course, everything is online now. But prior to pivoting all online, my clients were a result of the demographic that is here in Ann Arbor. And so here in Ann Arbor, there are a lot of folks who make good money. We have some of the the highest educated zip code in the U.S., depending on the year. So we have a lot of money in Ann Arbor, but we also have a lot of elitism, which makes a lot of people with this money feel incredibly anxious and guilty about having or earning money. So the clients that I often get are ones who on paper look like things are great, but are incredibly anxious about spending their money. They're so worried they're going to make a mistake. They don't want to run out. They are really paranoid about what it might look like if they spend, because how will their neighbors judge them slash how will they judge themselves? So that is a lot of what I see, which is often the opposite of what people think that I see when I say I'm a financial therapist. People tend to think that when I say I'm a financial therapist, I'm helping people who are experiencing a lack of income or a lack of money. And my whole thing is that 
money is going to show up in all of our lives, regardless of income, socioeconomic status, regardless of where we live. And financial anxiety, which is something that I specialize in, can happen to anybody regardless of their income. That's a lot of what I see is the highly anxious person who has some, what a lot of us would consider good money. Your tagline is shame-free financial therapy. What role does shame play in our financial lives? It plays a huge role. So many people come into my office or, you know, message me on Instagram saying that they feel like somehow they are doing their money wrong. They can't figure out how to do it right. One of the most common questions I get asked is, what are other people doing? Because money is so secretive. You know, in our country, it is not financial literacy is not something that is taught federally. You know, the states mandate what they do and what they don't teach. And oftentimes the things that they are teaching are really outdated, like how to balance a checkbook, which like who has a checkbook anymore? So there's so much shame around money because it's so secretive. And the way that we do things in our country is once you turn 18, congratulations, you're now an adult. But we don't teach kids, we don't teach teenagers how to manage their money and how to manage their emotions around money. So then when they hit 18 and all of a sudden have a credit score and the capacity to take out loans and take on credit, there's so much anxiety over, I don't know how to do this. And yet I'm told that I'm an adult. So I feel like I should know better Then you know, fast forward 10, 20 years when clients are showing up in my office, they've been spending time trying to figure it out on their own and kind of fumbling along the way. And what they often do is what most of us do. They turn to Google and type in how to create a budget or how to manage money. And what pops up is a lot of shame-based, fear-mongering style advice. Things like you have to slash all of your expenses. You know, you're an idiot if you don't have an emergency fund. I can't believe you're going out there spending all this money. So then they're fed with more and more shame and they're going, oh my gosh, I am an idiot. I am so stupid. How come I didn't know to invest when I was getting my first job? How come I didn't know how to build out an emergency fund when I was younger. And then they're so anxious and overwhelmed because the advice they've turned to has been rooted in shame and fear. So shame plays a an enormous role in our relationship with money. And, and that's why I talk about shame-free personal finances and shame-free financial therapy. I'm not going to yell at you for buying a latte. I'm not going to get on your case because you don't have an emergency fund. Of course, we'll work on that together. But we know that when you're thinking about carrot versus stick behavioral rewards, you know, the carrot's going to go farther and that's going to be much less anxiety provoking. So could you share a couple of tips and tricks for dealing with emotions as they come up when trying to make a financial decision? Yeah. So one thing is just to notice them. We also are kind of taught in our country that we're allowed to feel one emotion and that's happy. (laughs) And if we feel anything besides happy, something must be wrong. So if you sit down to create a budget or to take a look at how much of your paycheck is going into your 401k and you're starting to feel something that isn't happiness, your normal. If you're experiencing anxiety, overwhelm, uncertainty, all of those things are okay. And what I invite you to do is just notice them and kind of label them. You know, Brene Brown always says, name it to tame it. So if you can label what that is, that helps you to make an informed decision with what to do then with that emotion. So you can say, okay, I'm looking at my pay stub. I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. I'm likely feeling overwhelmed because there's a bunch of numbers here. 
and I'm trying to associate some meaning with them. So what does it mean when I look at how much money has gone to my federal taxes and my state taxes? And what does it mean to have money going into an HSA? And what does it mean to have money going into a 401k? And what are the most important things that I need right now? Maybe I'm looking at my pay stub because I'm I'm getting ready to hire an accountant and they needed to know some of this information. Well, what was the information they needed? Where can I find it? How can I kind of problem solve for that specific question? So naming it, acknowledging that it's okay, and also that it's temporary. You won't feel anxious and overwhelmed all of the time. You might just be feeling it right now. And so many of us don't want to experience any feeling that isn't happiness. So we try and rush through it. So we kind of peek at our pay stub with one eye, try to find the number that we need, and then like move on as quickly as possible so we don't have to sit with that discomfort. But the reality is, we are all capable of tolerating uncomfortable feelings. And the longer you sit with them, the more they dial down. It's like anything. When you jump in a cold pool, it's really, really cold at first. But if you sit there and tread water for long enough, eventually your body acclimates and it doesn't feel like that shock to the system. I'm curious with your client base, you talked about being highly educated, many of them. And then also this concept of a lot of people not having financial literacy or not feeling comfortable with the numbers that they see on their paycheck. I think I have a slanted point of view because I studied accounting in college and I took tax classes and like really got in detail. And I worked in a payroll department for a while before I went into software engineering. And so I think, you know, I assume other people kind of know what I know because it's just kind of the, the basic stuff about how deductions work and how your taxes work and you know, how you file taxes at the end of the year. But it sounds like what you're saying is there are a lot of people in the world that are even highly educated that do not have a, a solid foundation of kind of basic payroll taxes and and functions. And I'm kind of stretching here, but maybe even possibly how to set up a budget and how to manage your money flow. Is that, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. And I would say that, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the world in which we live, we make a lot of assumptions about how everybody else must also be doing things. That's why I loved the um, Black Lives Matter podcast that you guys did because you guys were like, wow, a few years ago, I thought everybody experienced the world in this way. And then now I'm learning that not everybody experiences the world in this way. And so it's the same thing when it comes to money. If we have spent time studying accounting and payroll, and understand that, we also assume that that is everybody else's baseline. But the reality is the baseline is almost nothing. And and it's not to talk down to people. It's not to say you're stupid. It's to say we're simply not taught about it. And so to really think about it from starting at ground zero and building your way up. And again, really leaning on like, this isn't about shaming you. This isn't about embarrassing you. We aren't taught this stuff. And interestingly, Dan, a lot of the clients that I've worked with work in financial sectors and in financial services. Yeah, so they're able to apply it at like a business level or at a logical level. But then when it comes to their personal income and their personal goals, it's really hard. It's really hard to kind of apply those things elsewhere. Yeah. You brought up a good point there about the uh, our society and really not talking about financial literacy, not teaching it in the schools, n- not being open about it in our culture, right? It's like, how much money do you make? How do you manage money? I think it's really normal to feel like an idiot even asking a question that indicates that you don't know something that you should know, or maybe you should have d- discovered 20 years ago when you got your first paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a general point of view that things that we spend money on are a reflection of 
our values or our emotional state. Do you agree with that? And then I have a follow-on question. I think that's the goal. Meaning in my work, I hope that we are working towards with my clients, making sure they're, they're spending, they're saving and investing is in alignment with their values. I think for a lot of people, that is also a bit of a foreign concept. This idea that you get to decide where your money goes and that you get to be in charge of it. For so many people, they're in positions where they feel like their money is just controlling them. They have bills to pay. They have loans to pay back. They've got mouths to feed. And at the end of the month, they're like, I don't know where my money went. I just know I spent it all. Whereas what you're talking about is is really leading in alignment with your values and spending in alignment with your values. That tends to feel better emotionally when we know that what we're spending on feels good for us. So I think a lot of people want to get there, but they just don't know how. So how do you help someone discover their values? Is it is it hard? Is it tricky to even discover what your values are when you have all of these emotions kind of getting in the way? Yeah. What I like to do is take people through kind of various life domains and think about the values that are important to them in those different life domains. So thinking of what's important for you in personal growth and development, what's important for you in terms of your community, what's important for you in terms of relationships and family. And as we kind of go through those different domains, you'll start to see themes. Because if I say to somebody, what are your top five values, right? They're going to be like, am I at a job interview? What am I supposed to say? I think honesty and integrity are good ones. I'll just throw that out there. So we really want to think about what is important to you specifically, and then kind of helping them build out those values. So I, I think it can be helpful to say like, what's important to you in terms of like your romantic relationship. Okay. Maybe honesty is really important, but maybe spontaneity is really important. Maybe communication is really important. Okay. Now let's talk about work when it comes to work. What are the values that you need in a workplace? Okay. I need a lot of autonomy or I need a lot of specific direction. I need to be working at a place that's values driven or mission driven right? So once we can start to kind of distill those things, then we can start to cultivate themes for our personal spending that make the most sense for that particular person or couple. Could you give an example of someone who came to you and after you adjusted their or helped them see what their values are, they went from purchasing A to purchasing B or having job A to having job B or sort of connect the dots between where the rubber hits the road on their purchases. Yeah, for sure. So thinking of an example of somebody who had come in and said, ah, my spending is kind of all over the place. I don't really feel like I have a good handle on it. I need to figure it out. And and the instinct is to go, okay, let's just like review everything and sort it out. But if we take a step back and go, what's important to you? And for this person, travel was really important to them um, and having their own space was really important to them. So how much were they spending or saving? on travel and how much were they spending or saving on their own home. And whether we're talking about a literal house with a mortgage or an apartment is irrelevant, but for them, cultivating a space of safety within their home was really important. And then when we looked at their spending and found like duplicate subscriptions for things like gym memberships, that was like an aha moment of, wow, I'm spending a lot of money on gym memberships when really I'd rather be spending my money on travel or spending money on kind of cozying up my home. And then also thinking about, okay, if 
health is still a value for you, but you don't want to spend on gym memberships. How can we kind of create a win-win situation? You can cancel that gym subscription and also spend more time kind of going for walks or runs or when you're traveling, like picking out places that have good hiking or good biking trails, right? So kind of blending all of those things together. So it's about, it's not about like slashing everything. It's just about cutting the things that aren't important to you. We're trying to create a, an app that's a budgeting app that has a solid base in psychology and healthy psychological practices. So I'd love to ask you a question about budgeting. So what are the psychological reasons people fail to stick to a budget? I have a lot of theories on this. Okay. <laughs> so uh, a couple of theories on why I think budgets are so hard to stick to is the word itself. And I know you guys are like, dang, that's the name of our app. But bear with me. <laughs> when a lot of people think of a budget, they think of restriction. They think of cutting back. They think of like having to hold themselves to a certain standard. And what we know about that type of approach is Think about the other kind of area in our lives that a lot of uh, the conventional wisdom is to restrict and to track and to hope that things get better. Food. Diet. Right? right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Diet. Right. So what happens in dieting that also happens in budgeting is we get super excited. We're like, okay, it's November 1st. I'm starting this new diet. I'm starting this new budget. I've got all my keto supplies or Whole30 supplies or whatever it is. I've got my meals prepped. I'm ready to go. And for a few days, maybe even a week, you're on a roll. Everything feels good. You're really proud of yourself for meal prepping. You're eating well, all good. Then you have a day where you get to work and you forget your lunch and you go out to eat, right? And you maybe order something that isn't exactly Whole30 or keto approved. And rather than it being a one-off thing and going, it's okay, Lindsay, I made a, you know, I made a mistake. I had a hiccup. We go right to black and white thinking. Oh my gosh, I've ruined my diet. I can't stick to anything. This is so stupid. What a waste of time. Who was I thinking that I could adhere to this? And then everything kind of goes out the window. Right. So when we also think about budgeting, there's a lot of that same stuff that comes up where we hold ourselves to these intense restrictions. And then what happens is we don't allow ourselves this idea of being okay with hiccups or roadblocks. When it comes to behavior change and maintaining a new habit or a new behavior, there are kind of six steps. But the sixth step is you know, in, in the recovery community, they call it a relapse, but for people who aren't in recovery, it's called a mistake. It's called a slip up. It's called a, you know, a speed bump, whatever you want to call it. But you have two ways to approach that. You can either say, all right, this is it. I'm never doing this again. Or you can say, why did that happen? And we can, not from a judgmental place, but why did it happen? Oh, I was hungry or I needed to buy that thing or I forgot my thing at home. What can I learn from that situation? Well, I can learn I need to meal prep or I can learn that when I go out the door and I forget my lunch, I have a list of places that can be my go-to for carry out that are still going to be healthy and nourishing and are going to be good for me. And I won't feel like I've fallen off the wagon and or 
say it's okay. It's okay to have that slice of cake. It's okay to spend maybe on drinks when you had anticipated and on, on not spending on it. And what can we learn from it? And how can we continue to strengthen that resilience muscle so that it doesn't become, again, that, that blame and shame? So the more that we can normalize that mistakes are just a, a part of the journey, the better off we will be, whether it comes to food or whether it comes to budgeting. So those are my, my thoughts on why budgets are so hard for people. Now I want to take it to the couple level because I know you work with couples. So we have all of this, all of this internal individual psychology going on with feelings, mindsets, what we've been told about money while we were growing up. And then you layer that on with a, with a partner who probably has all of their own feelings, perceptions, ideas, and values. So my question is the complexity of that. How do you sort when people come with relationship problems related to money How do you begin sorting out and treating the problem? So what I love to do is go back in time, right? Which is a very therapeutic technique to say, tell me what was going on in your childhood. And a lot of my couples get really irritated when I do this because they're like, I don't want to talk about what happened in third grade. I want to talk about why my wife won't let me spend a dollar any day of the week. And my retort to that is that we cultivate our relationships with everything, food, education, sleep, you know, religion, all of that as children. The bulk of our brain development is happening between the ages of zero and seven and zero and eight. So those are those really pivotal years and important years when it comes to what our relationship with money is like. So when we can go back in time with these couples and say, tell me what it felt like in your household. You know, you guys talked about this on a previous podcast episode about the conversations you need to be having, right? But this is why. It's not because it's just nice to know. It's because we soak up those beliefs as children. So if in your household, anytime money got brought up with your parents, it was rife with tension, with arguments, with discomfort, then you're going to also soak that up. And you might, that might manifest to you as an adult in a different way. It might manifest to you when you get to your, your romantic partnership and say, oh my gosh, every time my parents talked about money, they fought about it. So my response is going to be to never talk about money. So we don't fight. Right. Or they might be on the other end of that pendulum where they say, oh my gosh, my parents fought about money all the time. I'm going to make sure that my partner and I talk about money daily so we never run into fights about money, right? So these are some of those nuances that color the way in which we show up into our relationships and why it's so important, not for just each person to go back in time, but also for their partner to hear what their childhood was like around money so they can also develop empathy and compassion for the way that their partner is showing up. And what I often say to my clients is that their response to money comes from a place of protection, right? You built that response to protect yourself from hurt or pain, and you're likely trying to prevent your relationship from ending up in hurt or pain. But if your partner doesn't understand where you're coming from and they have a different viewpoint on it, it's going to seem like it's just all you want to do is fight or all my partner wants to do is have conflict about money. But if we go back to each person is doing the best they can with the knowledge they have and the skills that they've learned, then that helps to dial down that shame and blame so that the couple can really move together and get to the here and now of why we aren't spending money or what would it take for us to safely spend money. So I wanted to talk about your book, The Financial Anxiety Solution, which was published in, in February of 2020, correct? Yeah, right. Good timing. Like, <laughs> oh <my> right, <laughs> right before the coronavirus. So 
you highlight that you provide popular money management techniques that can help turn the page on financial anxiety. Can you talk about a couple of the techniques that are in the book? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to anxiety, a lot of anxiety, again, is feeling nervous, feeling anxious, feeling on edge. And what we try to do is get rid of that feeling as quickly as possible. So if I'm a person who has anxiety with my money and I look at, you know, I Google the first person's budget that I can find and I try to stick to it and it doesn't work, well, then I might determine that budgeting just isn't for me. So what I wanted to set up is that there are different ways that you can create a budget, right? You can do something that's super line item where you track every single penny. And, if, and for a lot of people, that feels really empowering. For a lot of people, that feels really overwhelming. You can do kind of the 50-30-20 budget, which I think is quite popular, where you spend a percentage of your money on needs, a percentage of your money on wants, and then you put a percentage of your money towards saving and debt repayment. If that feels still too nitty-gritty to you, then you can do an 80-20 budget, where 80% of your money is just going towards expenses, and 20% of your money is going towards debt repayment and saving. And there are more than one way to cultivate a budget or a spending plan in a way that works for you. So I offer those in the book just as different ways to try. You know, I say, try out the 50, 30, 20 for a couple of weeks, see how it feels. If it feels like too much, then let's try, you know, the 80, 20. If it doesn't feel like enough for you, then let's really get into tracking every single expense with, with pen and paper or whatever it may be. But the big thing when it comes to budgeting is helping people understand that it's not about restriction. As you guys know, it's about the freedom that comes from knowing what's coming in and what's going out. So if we can keep that at the forefront when we are creating a budget, we're already in a better place than thinking it's about not allowing you to do the things that you want to do. Do you think that there's some correlation between the type of people or personalities that do better with a certain style of budgeting? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't seen anything, which is really interesting. You might think right off the bat that the people who are high anxiety or who are more type A would do better with something where they're tracking every single day, but I don't necessarily see it. So I, I haven't yet seen a pattern of, you know, this type of person does better with the 50, 30, 20, and, and this person does better with, with tracking every single thing. So no, that's a really good question, but I haven't come across any anecdotal patterns that would point to that. Yeah. I'm sure there's such a primary key of the self-discovery and, and leaning into it and trying to figure out what works for you. That's, that's just unique to each individual and probably even more unique when you have a, a marriage situation where you have two different people and they have to figure out what works for them. As a follow-up, have you, have you seen things that tend to work better for couples versus individuals? <laughs> 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 because I think that's a very different dynamic, right? Like if you're managing your own money, you just figure out what works and you're done. And yep. if you're managing money with someone else, like I could see that yeah, would take a lot more work to try to figure out a system that supports both people. Yeah. So no, Dan, you hit the nail on the head in that it is just more complicated when you have two cooks in the kitchen instead of one. Now, that does not mean that I'm a proponent of having one person manage the money and one person take a back seat. I think naturally in a lot of couples, there's one person who's more interested and that's perfectly fine if they kind of take on the bookkeeping stuff. But what I think is really important regardless of the approach is the open communication and continually making sure that the spending and saving 
saving and, and goals are in alignment with that couple's needs. So I'm a huge proponent of money dates where I have my couples set a timer where they cover money related stuff. When I first start <laughs> working with couples, I recommend that they do a money date weekly and then um, back off to monthly. But I think it's super important to just build it in as a healthy part of a relationship because what tends to happen with couples, at least in the ones that I see, is they don't talk about money. Then they do talk about money, but only when they're forced to, right? When somebody loses a job, right? When some, when there's some like stressor, you you know, a couple might find out they're pregnant and then they have to talk about money. And then the emotions are already high. And then when you start talking about money, then it kind of goes off the rails. So if we build it in, it makes it a little bit easier and having some sort of, of template or guide where you're both on the same page as you discuss your money can be huge. So it's not one person's agenda, but it's really the two of you collaborating together. So what would a money date look like? I'm sure it could be whatever length you want, but what does it look like? Yeah. So a money date, typically, I think it's helpful for people to kind of go over four categories, kind of every time or at least monthly, uh, or I'm sorry, every time. Yeah. Or at least monthly or quarterly. And that's kind of what's coming in, what's going out, how much do you own and how much do you owe? So it's like your monthly bookkeeping stuff and then some of your longer term stuff to get to net worth and debt. And I think that helps to provide like a day-to-day picture of what's going on and then also kind of a long-term view of what's going on. And I don't think money dates should be any longer than 75 minutes. I think our brains start to get pretty fatigued after that. So that's why I'm a huge fan of the timer. And then if you get through those earn, spend, owe, and own categories, then you can start thinking about what are other things you need to tackle as a couple. And that could be anything from, do we need life insurance to, do we have our wills and trust in place to, have we thought about, you know, do we want to provide some long-term care for our parents or spend money on education for our children? Some of those types of questions can also get folded in, but not doing all of the questions all at once. So kind of picking out like two or three things that you're going to talk about and then wrapping it up um, so it doesn't drag on for endeavor. <laughs> it feels like some of these questions I think about as an adult and I feel like there's this sense that's like that's so elementary. Do we need to talk about that? And I wonder how much of that is in our culture. I know we, that this is kind of a theme that we've already talked about, but just this feeling of like really getting down to the basics. Do you sometimes have a hard time with clients like being willing to open up about money and just to talk about some of those mechanics and how they work? No, it's interesting. I have a harder time with the emotional side, which is, you know, funny because that's what I do. But a lot of people, again, they think that if they can get the logistics figured out, that then everything will feel okay. Mm, and so I they want to stay there. Yeah. So a lot of them want to stay in like budgeting and retirement land, which is fine. But it's also like, why? You know, that question comes up all the time. What's your why? Why is it important for you to have a budget? Why is it important for you to have a certain amount earmarked? for retirement and thinking about some of those bigger things. Because again, like food, and I know it's a little bit of a lazy connection, but like food, we interact with money every day. And if we don't start cultivating a healthy relationship with it, we can develop a relationship with it that is avoided, anxious, whatever. And, and we really want to make sure that when we're interacting with our money, we feel okay. Or if at least not okay, at least we can tolerate it, right? We have the skills to be able to tolerate what's going on financially. So I would like to know what financial wellness looks like from your perspective. 
Yeah. Financial wellness to me is, is just a part of wellness as a whole. So financial wellness to me means feeling comfortable and confident in your relationship with money. And then when I think about financial wellness as a whole, making sure that you are able to afford the things that are important to you. So are you able to afford to move your body in a way that works for you? Are you able to afford eating foods that align with your needs and your nutritional wellness? Are you able to afford sleeping eight hours a night? Are you able to afford to go to a job that you don't want to rip your hair out at, right? So all of those different intersections of wellness, money touches. And so just thinking about making sure that our money is in a good place so that we can afford the things that we want in our lives. And it's not about like, you know, the big fancy things, but it's just, as you guys have said again and again, lining up your spending with your values. So I have a personal question for you, uh, which is, um, why did you decide to go into financial therapy and what is your greatest joy in the work that you do? Yeah, I grew up incredibly financially privileged. Um, My dad was a physician and we grew up in a small town and I was told time and time again that we we are incredibly fortunate. You know, my mom was a teen mom and I saw kind of firsthand how things could have gone differently. And so I'd kind of internalized the importance of being good with money. And the way that I had internalized that as a young adult was that because I was fortunate, I didn't have to pay for college myself. My parents paid for school for me that I thought that being good with money meant treating everybody else. <laughs> so that's kind of how I internalized it. And then I also kind of demonized money for a while. You know, I kind of swung in that opposite direction of saying, you know, money is bad, money corrupts people. And I kind of dipped my toes in the hippie waters and then realized that I didn't want to live on a commune, right? And and kind of came back to earth. And as I did that, the economy was crashing. It was 2008. And during my undergrad years, I spent the bulk of my time working as a waitress and as a bartender. So anytime I needed money, I just picked up a shift, right? So anytime I needed spending money, I just called the bar and I said, hey, if if anyone wants to give up their shift, like I'll take it. So I also had this concept that I could always get money. I just had to ask. And it wasn't asking my parents. I want to be clear. It It was going in and working. So then the economy crashed and I realized really quickly that I had to be better at managing money. And as I learned from different personal finance folks, the importance of managing my money, I realized how much calmer I felt. I realized how much more in control I felt and it just felt so good. So when I went back to graduate school for social work, I'd always had an interest in people and in mental health. I studied depression and anxiety. So I spent a lot of time specializing in that. And as you can imagine, money stuff came up and money stuff kept coming up. And my training as a social worker was to say, when money comes up, you refer out, right? So somebody says, oh, I'm struggling with my budget. My job is to say, okay, let's find a financial counselor for you, or let's call debt consolidation, or let's help you, you know, find a way to hit pause on your bills for a little bit, right? But I felt like there was something more there and something missing. And so I wanted to find a way to ethically bring financial literacy to the world of psychology. And so I sought out additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy so that I could help people, you know, these clients who were coming in and saying, I'm stressed about money so that I could help them because to open up about money stress takes a lot of effort and energy. And it also takes a lot of trust. And I really, I really wanted to hold space for those clients in my office. And so that's what I did. So I want to ask if a person wants to try to discover those, um, I forget what the the term you just used, but basically 
money perspectives or voices that they've internalized and then they can isolate the behaviors that that internalization has caused. What are some questions that they can do to discover their internal monologues regarding money? What I like to do is consider what thoughts or feelings are coming up when you're interacting with money. So what thoughts or feelings are coming up when you look at your paycheck? What thoughts or feelings are coming up when you have to get your, you know, a flat tire fix? What thoughts or feelings are coming up when you have to change your retirement contributions for the year? Anytime we interact with money, we're often having some sort of response. So it can be helpful in that moment to pause and go, what's coming up for me? Am I feeling calm? Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling overwhelmed? Am I feeling gross? Right? So thinking about what some of those feelings are, and then also thinking about what are some of those associated thoughts. If some of those thoughts are, do I have enough money? Can I afford this? Those are some things to kind of consider digging into. So those can be some great starting points. If you start to notice a theme of every time I look at money, I feel dot, dot, dot gross, then that's probably something to dig into. You know, did your parents say that people with money are bad or greedy or that to talk about money is impolite? Then, you know, you can start to kind of connect the dots there. So I would like to offer this time for you to talk about any of the products you have or projects you're working on or that you would like to tell our audience about. As you mentioned, my company is called Mind Money Balance. I mostly work with couples, but I have been hearing from a lot of people that they want to work with me, even if they aren't in a couple. So I just kind of opened up space to work with individuals and I can do financial coaching across the U.S. and Canada. When it comes to financial therapy, which includes a diagnosis and treatment, I can only do that in Michigan. So keep that in mind. But I'm really excited. I'm getting ready to kick off season two of the Mind Money Balance podcast. And I've landed on doing different themes for the podcast. So this upcoming one will be all about therapists and money. And then kind of in keeping with the theme of identities that have really come to light during 2020, I'll be doing different seasons on race and money and religion and money and gender and money. So I'm really looking forward to that and making it a little bit more of a broad appeal. I have one more question about COVID and race and money that you just brought up. Is there anything about the what these times that we're in, how do you see them being exemplified in people's behavior and the issues they're coming with you to you with today? I think a lot of the things I think you hit on it is that the things that have been happening forever and ever are just being amplified. We can no longer hide them under the rug. We can no longer pretend that they aren't happening. So the things that we might've been able to close our eyes or plug our ears to, we cannot be blind to. And I understand that as I say that a lot of people are going, well, you know, white people could close their eyes and ears to it, but as a Brown person, I couldn't. And I, I hear that. I'm also just saying that right now we have to really think about what's important to us. Think about, the type of neighbors and citizens we want to be and to really make sure that we are practicing living in alignment with those values. And I know I keep saying that and it probably sounds really redundant, but I think it's really important. And I think it's really important to acknowledge all areas of privilege, which is why even though I identify as biracial, I'm Filipina and white, I'm a woman, um, I have some of those marginalized statuses. I'm being really clear this year that I do come from money and how that has shaped me and how having that privilege has put me ahead of many other people. So Lindsay, as you know, the podcast is called Why'd You Buy That? And the general philosophy is that we want to encourage people to take a moment and think about what they're spending and if it 
brought them joy or didn't, or they feel anxious about it, or it was just a waste of money and they're just okay with that or okay with acknowledging that, then they just reflect on why they bought that. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us something that you've bought in the past week or so and tell us why'd you buy that? So I was totally going to cheat and say what I have received in the last week or two, because within the past couple of weeks, I celebrated my 34th birthday and my in-laws bought me an electric blanket, which in Michigan I've never had. And I am perpetually cold from like October to March. And let me tell you, I have been plugging that thing in every day from like 6 PM to nine. I just like cook on the couch. And I, it, I looked it up afterwards and it was like 130 bucks. And I would have definitely spent that money on it again if I had to. Right. And the value that underlies that purchase is feeling warm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The the Danish, right, would call it hygge, H-Y-G-G-E. And that is the feeling of coziness on a dark, cold day. So mm-hmm. that is really what I'm going after. That's that's Love that's it. like a much more cultured, sophisticated value. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, and then did you actually purchase something? Yes, I actually did purchase something. My partner and I went to, we're in Michigan where we actually grow, we don't grow apples, but a lot of Michiganders grow apples. And um, so we went to get some cider and pumpkin spice donuts and that was $21.60 and it was worth Every dime. Delicious. Mm. So family. Good. That's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you for taking the time with us today. This has been terrific, Lindsay. And again, if any of our listeners would like to find you, they go to mindmoneybalance.com. Is that, that the best is way? Correct. Yeah. I'm I'm there and I'm often on Instagram. I've, I'm trying to dial back on the usage. I've been able to dial back on that Facebook usage. So Instagram's up next. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Trip. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Since I've had that, and she's my type of girl, and everybody knows it.